Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself and Canadian editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. As many of you know, legendary American biologist, author, and Harvard professor E.O. Wilson died on December 26th, age 92. Wilson was much admired for his environmental advocacy and his pioneering work in the fields that came to be known as biodiversity and sociobiology. His awards and medals, of which he won more than 100 for his scientific work, are too numerous to mention. So how did Scientific American magazine honor Wilson's legacy upon his death? Well, for one, it ran an article by someone named Monica McLemore, titled The Complicated Legacy of E.O. Wilson. We must reckon with his and other scientists' racist ideas if we want an equitable future. And what exactly were Wilson's racist ideas? McLemore didn't specify. On social media, when McLemore was challenged to produce a single sentence of Wilson's that was racist, she could not. And what's worse, McLemore seems completely ignorant of some of the basic scientific concepts that any undergraduate student of Wilson's work would be expected to know. At one point, in fact, she wrote that, quote, the so-called normal distribution of statistics assumes that there are default humans who serve as the standard that the rest of us can be accurately measured against, end quote. This is a flamboyantly false statement, and it shocked many readers that such an article appeared in any publication with the word scientific in its title. But it didn't shock veteran author and Quillette contributor Michael Shermer, who edits Skeptic magazine and was for many years a columnist at Scientific American. He's been charting the decline of Scientific American for several years now, a subject that he addressed in a November 17th article on his substack called Scientific American Goes Woke. In 2021 in particular, Scientific American published a slew of simply bizarre articles, such as one focused on the accusation that the Jedi Space Knights in Star Wars are white-privileged racists who brandish their lightsabers as misogynistic phallic symbols. I spoke to Michael earlier this month over Zoom, and we talked about not only Scientific American's turn toward dubious ideological advocacy, but also the larger trends playing out in science more generally. We also discussed the way both conservatives and progressives take turns rejecting the scientific method, with anti-vaxxers and climate change deniers on the right, and so-called blank slate proponents on the left, some of whom now claim that even basic human sexual biology is a kind of colonialist myth. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Uh, you're a longtime friend of Quillette, and you've written for us. Also, you wrote for Scientific American for... More than two decades, is that right? 18 years. April 2001 to January uh, 2019. One of the subjects we're going to talk about today is going to be the intrusion of maybe progressive ideology into science and science journalism. But maybe you could talk a little bit about the opposite phenomenon, because what's ironic here is that I think you've dedicated a good part of your career to disputing the intrusion of what might be called conservative or religious Christian ideas into the coverage of science? 
Yeah, I certainly have. Right. I wrote a book called Why Darwin Matters, which was all about the denial of evolution or the skepticism of evolution by uh, certain populations, which are uh, uh, highly predictable based on their religious beliefs and, and politics, namely Christian conservatives, are the least likely to accept Darwin's theory of evolution. And so that's been a problem for a long time. It's it's mostly until the last maybe 10, 15 years that we've often thought of conservatives as being science deniers and, and liberals as being the ones that are champions of the science book. And uh, now that seems to be something in something of a reversal. But if you actually look at the real history, um, yes, they, it's conservatives who and Christians who tend to be skeptical of evolution, but also climate change and, you know, a few other topics. But if you look at liberals, they, they too are, are concerned about uh, scientific findings related to, say, GMOs or any kind of product or technology that benefits large corporations, let's say. <laughs> so Monsanto is, is always the favorite target uh, there that or big pharma. We've seen some of that recently. They're making so much money on the pandemic, that sort of thing. But also in the social sciences, the denial of human nature, you know, the blank slate model. I guess what I'm asking here is if I went and found the Michael Shermer from circa 2000, uh, around the time you started writing your Scientific American column, would that version of you be surprised to learn that two decades hence, a lot of the pushback against science would come from progressives. Well, in principle, no, I wouldn't be surprised because I did see it back then, even in the 90s, even in the 80s, the whole idea of political correctness corrupting the social sciences was pretty prominent, even when I was in college in the 70s. But political, political correctness is not inherently anti-scientific. But it's there. It can be. It could be. <laughs> it just depends on how it's applied and, and what the, the goal of it is. Uh, but again, this, this sort of blank slate notion that, you know, culture is everything, environment's everything. Therefore, we can engineer society to be fairer and more just from the top down by just tweaking the dials of culture and politics and economic policy and so forth. Then we, we can correct these injustices because biology has nothing to do with it. That's been around for a long time. That's really post-World War II. And for understandable reasons, again, you know, the whole eugenics program, which, by the way, in the 1920s and 30s was primarily promoted by progressives, what we would today call progressives, far-left liberals. The whole eugenics movement was a liberal movement. The idea there, again, engineering society to be fair and just, we, we need to adjust both the culture and the biology. And uh, now, of course, after World War II, you know, liberals realized what a catastrophically bad idea eugenics was. So they dumped it and said, well, that was a right wing cause. So really, these issues have been around for a long time, really, at least a century. You know, so what's, what's newer today, I guess, is just the intensity of it, perhaps enhanced by social media. So the, the general tone, no, I wouldn't be surprised. But I guess what has surprised me is the, the censoriousness of the left, that it wasn't that, you know, that we should debate these ideas and show why they're wrong. It's that these ideas should not even be spoken of, almost as if the words themselves were totemic, you know, that, that this article should not be published, this professor should be fired, these ideas should never, ever be discussed and put in the marketplace of ideas to be refuted. Not even that. At least that used to be a liberal cause. You know, we'll have open debate and disputation and we'll show why the other side is wrong. That's not even on the table anymore. Here in Canada, where, where I live and work, uh, Tommy Douglas, a revered left-wing hero of 20th century New Democrat politics, he was, uh, in his early days, something of a eugenicist. Mm -hmm. Karl Marx was, was a phrenologist. 
as disgusting as it is to imagine, a lot of these reviled ideas at, at one point among, I guess, what we would now call progressives, it was seen as part of the recipe for bettering humanity. Right, right. So I'm going to send people to your Substack. There's an article that you wrote November 17th, 2021. This is a couple of months ago. A lot of people are, are reading it now for reasons we'll get into. Scientific American Goes Woke. You catalog some of the, the really weird stuff that Scientific American has been publishing. And by the way, Scientific American has been around how long? Since, since the 19th century. 1845. Before the U.S. Civil War. <laughs> yeah. And we were talking about the importance of emphasizing ideas like evolution. They ran one article, July 5th, 2021. Denial of evolution is a form of white supremacy. <laughs> and the argument here is, is that, as you described, because we are all from Africa and thus black, it's true, we're all ultimately from Africa. Uh, the author, when Alison Hopper verse evolution deniers, i.e. creationists, uh, are ipso facto white supremacists because they want to deny their black roots. Published July 5th, 2021. What's interesting here is you note that one of the groups in the United States that is most likely to be statistically creationist are black Americans right. <laughs> uh, who are apparently carrying water for the white supremacists by embracing creationism. This is some pretty wacky stuff. Was there a particular date at Scientific American when you first saw this kind of thing getting into print? Uh, well, I just noticed it in the last two columns that I had written uh, late 2018. In my skeptic column here in Substack, I, I kind of give the details of why those two columns were rejected and had to be revised because they were objecting to the way I had presented this particular argument about child abuse. And that, you know, I had used this example from Carol Tavers saying that, you know, the hypothesis that adults who abuse children were themselves abused as children, that, that, that was a pretty common hypothesis that psychologists floated around. But, but that hasn't held up very well because what about all the child abusers who were not abused as children? Or, or what about all the children who were abused and grew up to be a loving parents and, and wouldn't dream of abusing their children? And so you have those counterexamples or counterfactual examples, which I call the fallacy of excluded exceptions. And the editor at the time is not... Not, not the current editor now, uh, objected to this, saying, well, this the child abuse is a harmful thing, it's a painful thing, and we can't say stuff like this. And it's like, my column had nothing to do with how painful it is to somebody who's a victim. That's not what this is about. It's a scientific column discussing how you determine causality when there's a hypothesis on the table and you have to consider the counterfactual example. So that was the first note, like, huh, I wonder, that's kind of a weird thing to say. By the way, what I found weird about that example is your logic was actually, at least indirectly, imputing more moral responsibility for child abuse to the actual people who are perpetrating child right. abuse because you're not saying you're not saying that this is a strictly deterministic thing that it's just well if you were abused you're going to be an abuser and, and vice versa to a certain extent I, I think you were making an argument for holding people to account more strenuously yes. Yeah, exactly. Maybe they just imagined that someone would snapshot that little snippet of text from your article on Twitter, and and they, they feared that someone would take it completely out of context. Is, is that the fear that yes, editors yes, are yes, actually yes. preempting trolls who take stuff out of context? And... That's probably one factor. Um, the fear that somebody will be offended, I think, is in the back of the, of the mind of all editors, because uh, we, we know what happens when uh, articles go viral and... and, and and the Twitterverse explodes. 
So I, you know, I get that, but so what? <laughs> it's just the way it goes. You know, Quillette is dedicated to publishing controversial subjects. We've published one or two. Yeah, one or two. <laughs> just one or two. And, you know, if you're not offending somebody, really, you're not doing your job. So whether somebody's offended or not, it's just irrelevant. We have to ignore that. This episode you're describing, and again, this goes back to late 2018, being overly cautious. But the examples here from 2021 just absolutely go beyond. It's like on another level. And again, this is post-George Floyd. You have one column here. It's difficult to imagine that this isn't satire. And to the extent it's not satire, it's difficult to imagine that it didn't appear like in Vox or Slate or Vice, what I call the monosyllable progressive outlets. <laughs> right. Uh, and the title right. is Why the Term Jedi is Problematic for Describing Programs that Promote Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion. And the background here, this is September 23rd, 2021. The background here is that uh, some people who are promoting Justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion gave it a fun name, Jedi. I don't think it's in wide circulation yet, but some people are using it. Uh, and this, <laughs> this person uh, wrote a whole essay, which was published by the <laughs> what at least at one time was the most esteemed, certainly the most venerable uh, lay scientific publication in the United States. And here's a quote. Although they're ostensibly heroes within the Star Wars universe, the Jedi are inappropriate symbols for justice work. They are a religious order of intergalactic police monks, that's true, prone to white saviorism and toxically masculine approaches to conflict resolution, such as violent duels with phallic lightsabers, gaslighting by means of Jedi mind tricks, etc. The Jedi are also an exclusionary cult, membership to which is partly predicated. So is it possible, and this is a serious question, like, is it possible they got spoofed? This the, this was a joke. It's a Pete Bogosian uh, fake article? <laughs> yeah. I, like, right. someone yeah. won 50 bucks in a barroom bet that said, hey, I bet I can hoax Scientific American, and I'm going to publish this crazy bullshit piece. Like, this reads like satire. Yes. Has anyone investigated whether this was a joke? I thought that. I wondered about it. I let it sit for uh, a couple of weeks before I did it or wrote anything. Actually, it was a couple of months. So, I mean, the whole point of a hoax article is to expose it right away, the moment it's published, which is what, you know, the so-called hoax back in the 90s did. And, and the uh, Bogosian. Yeah. I mean, they expose it immediately because that's the whole point. So the, the fact that now here we are many months later, nothing has come out about uh, this being a hoax. No, apparently not. <laughs> and and they've, you know, they've doubled down, you know, with other articles, the one on the, the racist uh, and patriarchal nature of academic mathematics uh, is was another article in this time frames. The, the mathematics one was August 12th. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is uh, modern mathematics confronts its white patriarchal past. Well, so this one, one of us has to be the, the wokester here, so it's going to be me. <laughs> this at least argues something real, like not in a galaxy far, far, far away. It's, it's actually like here on planet Earth that it's, tr it's absolutely true. There are relatively few women and blacks in academic mathematics as compared to their share of the population at large. The argument here is that it's because of misogyny and racism. Do you at least credit the author here for making an argument that's at least plausibly true? So it's one hypothesis. Why are there these group differences in X? Well, one explanation is, is there something holding back the lower percentage group? 
And what's holding them back? Well, it could be racism, misogyny, patriarchy, bigotry, whatever. Those things exist. That's right. Yeah. And so, but here, if you actually, you know, you read the article, you see it, it's just filled with anecdotes. And, and I'm willing to give the benefit of the doubt to the person telling the stories that this actually happened to them. You know, this, this old professor grabbed my ass or he said, oh, don't you worry your pretty little head about this hard math problem. You know, the guys will figure it out. Those aren't actual quotes from the article, but that's the kind of the tone. I have no doubt that there are some old guys still around, or maybe they were. It's suspicious the way those rolled off the tongue, Michael. Well, these are actually, that's a quote from my, my, my late partner, Pat Lindsay, who was 73 and grew up in that kind of battle days where, you know, she's, she was really smart. And she had a hard time with these old guys just telling her, you know, you just don't belong in this kind of classroom. And, sure. you know, so that, that wasn't that long ago. This was like 1960s, right? So, but that, that was then, this is now, you know, this isn't the world we live in anymore. While you can always find some racist jerk that says something like this or a patriarchal misogynist that makes some wisecrack that is quite inappropriate now. Yes, of course, but what's the overall trend? What's the trend line? And the trend line is, is that, you know, academia is amongst the most liberal institutions in the world and graduate students down to students. They're pretty liberal. They're they're very far left leaning. And so while there may still be some old guys in mathematics that are you know hanging on and they're 80 or something and they still ha- harbor those old attitudes, most of the younger people we know from surveys are not are not like that at all. And most departments are scrambling to hire uh, women and, and people of color. They're desperately searching. They want to do the right thing. They want to correct the past. So what is the cause of the problem? Because I don't see that's the problem anymore. And so there, now we have to float a second hypothesis. Well, maybe there's a pipeline difference. So this is the second hypothesis, is that uh, there's fewer women applying for those jobs. Well, why are there fewer women applying for those jobs? So the second hypothesis is, well, it goes back to let's say middle school where girls are discouraged from going into STEM courses in middle school and then high school. And by the time they get to college, they're just down a different uh, track and they they don't go into those fields. So you you end up with a gender uh, asymmetry like that. Okay, that's possible. And that used to be the case. Uh, Sally Ride, Sally Ride, the first uh, woman astronaut, uh, she had a program in the 90s to encourage young girls in middle school to stay in math classes, stay in engineering and physics and so on. And that was a real thing at the time. And I remember she came to Caltech and gave a talk, which is a pretty male-dominated institution. And again, I know most of the people at Caltech, you know, they're very liberal. They're trying to do the right thing. But the pipeline doesn't give them as many options. There's just not as many women applying for those jobs. Okay, so the, then the third hypothesis, which has kind of an evolutionary argument to it, is that that the pipeline is asymmetrical like that because men and women differ in their interests of career pathways, that is vocational interests. And we know from research on if you give people a kid, say a sixth, seventh grade, eighth grade vocational interest test, and then you give them again in high school, and then you kind of track what they end up doing in college and in, and in life for careers, they match up pretty closely. That is that, that is the kids in that are let's say 13, 14, 15, are, are telling these poll takers or the test takers, this is what I'm interested in doing. And there you, you get a, a division between men and women of things versus people. So people-related jobs versus things-related jobs. And men are more interested in the things, women are more interested in the people. Okay, that's the, the kind of overview I'm oversimplifying. But 
So for example, in this article in Scientific American about this asymmetry in graduate degrees in, in mathematics between men and women, okay, it's true. So I, but I looked it up. So I, I, I found a data set on the doctoral degrees by field and gender from 2018 to 2019. And so they're right. Like in engineering, it's 25% female, 75% male graduate degree. In math and computer sciences, 27, I'll just round up, 27% female and 73% male. Physical and earth sciences, 35% female, 65% male. Business, 46% female, 54% male. Okay, now those are the ones that everybody talks about and focuses on, but let's continue up the chart, which I published in my Substack column here. You know, biological agricultural sciences, 51.4% female, 48.6% male. Or arts and humanities, 52% female. Uh, social behavioral sciences, 61% female. Education, 69% female, 68.4, sorry. Uh, health and medical sciences, 71% female. And public administration, 73.6% female. Okay, so how come no one's talking about the gender bias against boys in the pipeline or men applying for jobs? or applying for graduate degrees in public administration, health, uh, math, med sciences, education, uh, social behavioral sciences, arts and humanities, and the biological sciences. It, it, the asymmetry goes the other direction. So that, that would be, back to my example of the fallacy of excluded exceptions, you're only picking on the examples that support the narrative, that there's this gender bias. So just, when it, the data you present, the total number of doctoral degrees the aggregate total, I think for the latest data, women are now earning more degrees than men, at least in, in U.S. universities. Yes, yes. But I just want to, if I may speak for you, I want to disabuse people of the idea that this is two middle-aged white guys complaining that there's sexism in the university. I don't care that there's 74% of public admin PhDs in the United States that go to women. I wouldn't care if it's 80% or 90%. I'm sure that reflects the pool of qualified candidates the reason we're talking about this is just, as with much of your writing, you talk about this as a statistical comparison, as, as a heuristic, as a baseline. And the reason we're talking about all the women getting degrees in public administration isn't to complain about it. It's just say there's a lot of very smart women getting graduate degrees in public administration, more than smart dudes. And if you're a blank slatist, you'd think, well, this should be 50% or right down the line. Humans aren't like that. And the most progressive liberal countries, places like Scandinavia, where women have the most options, often because they most generous government plans, allowing people to structure their households and their careers in the way they want, those places often feature the most, quote unquote, sexist distributions of career choice and family time use, because men and women are just making Given the freedom, they're making different decisions. Actually, I'm not sure if you've seen that data. Yeah, I have. I have seen that study, and that's a good test of the hypothesis. So where there are no barriers or next to no barriers, uh, what do men and women choose to do? Because they can choose to do whatever they want. Look, the doors are open. Go ahead. Make your selections. And and the asymmetries are even greater there. So that means women... But this is scientific American. That's exactly the kind of hypothesis that, right. that's, that a magazine with the word scientific in it should be... Like there should have been an right. editor, an editor pushing back at someone and say, hey, what about the alternate hypothesis? Exactly. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> the editors you work with a scientific American... Did they have a scientific background? Most of them had science writing as a background. 
because that's what they do. You know, they're science editors, they're science writers, and that's a field. You could get, you know, a degree in science writing, and and that's what they did. So um, uh, Mary DiCristina was my previous boss. She's now at, uh, I think, Boston University and the head of the dean of the communications department. Uh, John Ranney was my boss when I first got hired. He was the editor-in-chief. Mariette was the first female editor-in-chief at the magazine. I don't think they would have tolerated any of this stuff. They're, they're gone, and they, there's a new crop of people I don't know. Laura Helmuth is the current editor-in-chief. I don't know much about her. I think she does have a graduate. I think she has a doctorate in chemistry or something like that. Which is great. I mean, I'm kind of a science snob. Uh, I'm very fortunate. I did a master's degree in engineering. And there are certain conversations and journalistic topics I have found in my career that unless you have some background in physics, the basics of chemistry, basics of statistics statistics especially, I would mm -hmm. say. And we're going to come back and mm -hmm. talk about that a little bit. There's just some topics you can't really understand. And then you, you start making basic mistakes. This seems like one of them. This is a total digression. That thing. No, 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 that's not a digression. I mean, that's an important point. You know, in Bayesian reasoning, there's a problem called base rate neglect, where if I say, well, there's 25.1% female graduate degrees in engineering, isn't that bad? My response is, I don't know, compared to what? <laughs> What's the base rate? How many people are applying? How many are there in the pipeline? You got to have some comparison. Thomas Sowell always made this point in many of his books that you could take two groups of anybody. So in America, we're obsessed with black-white group differences. But you know, he goes around the world. You know, in China and, and Russia and African countries, Asian countries. You can find two groups anywhere and compare them, and they're never going to be 50-50. It's never going to be that way. Income, or you know, degrees, or job status, or home ownership, or cumulative wealth, whatever whatever you, you want to measure, you could take any two groups and they're never going to be 50-50. It's impossible because people differ for a whole bunch of reasons that are not related to racism and bigotry and misogyny. You know, just personal interest. It, it should be okay to choose your own career and pursue something that you want to do without having to be forced into, say, STEM classes because that's the current narrative. If you don't want to do it, don't do it. I was interested in astronomy when I was in college and and I, you know, I looked at calculus and all the pretty heavy going math. I thought, well, this is just not for me. I just, I'm not good at this stuff. I got to find something else. Well, that should be okay, right? And, but again, the blank slateism, is, it can't be that men and women differ at all in, in vocational interests. They have to be the same. No, they don't, and they aren't, and that, and that has to be okay. The big mistake here is that it's reducing individuals into really stereotype groups. You're not an individual, you're a member of a of a group. It's prejudice, it's reverse prejudice, it's racist. It's misogynist to you know, take a woman and say, you're not an individual woman with your own interest. You belong to this collective group and we're gonna treat you as, as, as part of a group. If you're a regular listener to the Quillette podcast, you'll be familiar with BetterHelp, one of our original advertisers. Well, thanks to everything that's happened since early 2020, and the stresses that the pandemic has put on everyone, the online therapy services at BetterHelp are more relevant and in demand than ever. BetterHelp will help you unlock the tools you need to help with motivation, depression, anxiety, battling your temper, stress, dealing with insecurity in relationships or at work, whatever you need. Especially at a time like this, no one should be anxious about admitting that they're going through normal human struggles, because you deserve to be happy. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. And you don't even have to see anyone on camera if you don't feel comfortable doing so. 
It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Join the millions of people who are seeing what therapy is really about. And Quillette Podcast listeners get 10% off their first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash Quillette. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Quillette. Thanks to BetterHelp for their sponsorship. And now back to the Quillette Podcast. I noticed that in the corner of the image, because I'm looking at you on video, is that an Apollo Saturn Five? Oh yes, yes, yes. That's the uh, that's the Lego build. Yeah, yeah. I think you have that. That's Lego Kit Nine Two One Seven Six. I think. <laughs> and you know what's great like... about that one? That's exactly one thousand nine hundred sixty nine pieces, which is a little joke right. that the uh, the creators threw. Oh, nineteen sixty nine, right? The Apollo launch. That's funny. I did not know that. It's not quite the non sequitur. That may seem because, as, as maybe you know from following my Twitter, I've done a lot of big Lego kits with my my daughters during the pandemic. Yeah, I love those. Yeah. But what's interesting is when I was doing the Saturn V rocket. Did you do the Millennium Falcon? Did the Millennium Falcon. Um, did the Maersk cargo ship, uh, which is a, a rarity. It's actually a Japanese one. They were not that interested in those. What they were interested in was Walt Disney's Castle. We just did the Harry Potter Hogwarts. And those are the ones that kind of had a lot of figurines. They were less stereotypically male. And I got to say, so I live in a house. I got three daughters. One of them, my eldest, is super good at math. She's, she's heading to an engineering program, which is something that would not have been possible 50 years ago. So thank you, feminism. But I got to say, it's very difficult to be a blank slatist and to be a father of girls or of boys, <laughs> it doesn't work like that. <laughs> right. Another segue. I know that you're a very serious cyclist. Do you think being a serious athlete can inoculate you against some of this blank slate propaganda? Because if, if you try and advance yourself in any athletic field to a certain extent, you very quickly run up against the limits of your body that you can work out all you want. I played tennis for 10 years, you know, even even when I was a younger man, a much younger man, I was never going to be Roger Federer. <laughs> yes. uh, you and I are never going to be Michael Phelps. That. We never were going to be Michael <laughs> Phelps. Do you think there's there's something in that? Because it's the idea of blank slateism is absolutely laughable when it comes to athletics. And maybe you realize that and it's sort of you adapt your thinking when it comes to other spheres. Yeah, certainly. That's a, a perfect example. Uh, yes, there's there's only so much training can do and even doping. I mean, you can dope all you want, but unless you're already in the top 1%, you're not going to win the Tour de France on dope if you're like a 50%er in the middle of the pack. It just doesn't work that way. And so, so much of it is just, you know, the kind of VO2 uptake, that is how much oxygen can be exchanged between your your heart pumping and the blood into your the rest of your body and in your muscles in particular, and how much of that oxygen is absorbed by the muscles. You know, that's pretty 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 genetic you can train but there's a kind of an upper ceiling so you have this kind of almost like an error bar range you can go between you know x and y something like that whatever you're measuring but there's going to be an upper ceiling that genetics just programs you know height and you know muscle mass and so on which is why we have by the way gendered divisions in sports because most sports there's a huge difference between men and women on average uh, michael you're one of those uh, turfs who buy into the colonialist myth of biological sexual dimorphism <laughs> yes yeah, i'm afraid i i'm afraid i am uh, so but the, the second thing let me and let me just highlight sally Sattel's article for quillette a couple of weeks ago uh, in which she highlighted this ama document about 
advancing health equity, a guide to language, narrative, and concepts, as if medical doctors are now supposed to be social justice warriors. The AMA is advising doctors to, to jettison this narrative of individualism and its misbegotten corollary, the notion that health is a personal responsibility and that a more equitable narrative would expose the political roots of underlying apparently natural economic arrangements, such as property rights, market conditions, gentrification, oligopolies, and low rage weight. So doctors are now supposed to, instead of treating their patients as individuals, they're supposed to treat them as survivors. We should replace the statement, low-income people have the highest level of coronary disease with people underpaid and forced into poverty as a result of banking policies, real estate developers, gentrifying neighborhoods, oh and corporations weakening the power of labor movements, among others, have the highest level of coronary artery disease. Okay, the point of my reading this is that uh, it's telling people, you have, you have no chance of succeeding in life. It's over. You lost. And it's not your fault. There's nothing you can do about it, but it's not your fault. It's the fault of the patriarchy or the, the capitalists or the colonialists or the whites or whatever. I mean, what a, what a self-defeating argument to My make. doctor started talking like that to me. I, I'd find another doctor. Like, I, I don't go to my doctor to hear about the inequities of the banking system. <laughs> yeah. Coming back to the Scientific American thing, and, and this has happened in a lot of trade groups within science, where most doctors are perfectly sane, reasonable, smart, most scientists answer to the same description. Is it the case that as with Scientific American, as with a lot of these trade bodies, you have a lot of very highly motivated, maybe well-intentioned, socially progressive people, maybe younger people, who have essentially co-opted some very prestigious institutions. Science and Nature, prestigious peer-reviewed journals. There's been some whoppers of articles that have appeared in there. Is it the case that this is people with a certain ideological bent? And I mean, to a certain extent, I guess I kind of applaud them. They've taken the initiative. They said, these are the commanding heights ideologically within my field, and I'm going to go get it. And people like you and me have just been kind of lazy. To a certain extent, is this just people working hard within a certain subculture and at least for the moment, taking over the, the reins of these institutions? Yes, I think that's right. And I think if we're gonna give the benefit of the doubt to people's intentions, we should think of it like this, that we all saw the George Floyd video and the other horrific police killings of blacks. And the sense is, you know, damn it, we gotta do something about this. Now, most of us can't do anything about it. I mean, I'm not the mayor of a city to reform the police. I'm not the chief of police. I'm not a politician. I'm not a senator, representative, and so on. I, what am I going to do? I'm a science writer. Well, hey, we can do something about this. Now, what is this anti-racism thing about systemic racism? And yeah, that remember that Tuskegee experiment with science and the eugenics? And hey, wait a minute. Yeah, yeah, we have a connection here between science and social justice. Let's bore down and see what we could do. We'll start publishing about this, and then then we're making a contribution. Now, so I'm I'm skeptical of the kind of the the right wing interpretation of this. That you know these people hate America. You know they hate free they hate freedom. They're just trying to destroy our culture. No, no, they're not. They're, these are good people that want to do something. I want to do something. You know I look around and go, wow, this is you know okay, come on. Let's do something. All right. But what? OK, so, you know, and this leads to these, you know, protests and marches and, you know, people going down there with their placards and like they feel like they're doing something or you go on Twitter and post something because it makes you feel like, well, at least I'm saying something. And again, back to, you know, kind of where we began, it's not enough to just say, well, I think the other side is wrong. The liberals are wrong about this or the conservatives are wrong about that. And here's my arguments for why. And then they have their counter arguments. Now we're seeing more of this polarization that they're not just wrong, but evil. 
and immoral and they should be destroyed. And, you know, it's easy to, to get people engaged at that level because we do have that evolved sense of, uh, of a desire for justice, uh, seek revenge against wrongdoers who harmed our tribe or our family or our group, or our people, our political party, our religion. We're going to go get them. And that is a darker side of human nature. Again, it's not a blank slate. It's there for a perfectly good reason. Because there are bad people, there are psychopaths out there. You, you, you do have to, you know, signal that you're unhappy about some unfair exchange with somebody else in your group, and and you know, we wear our emotions on our sleeves and our faces for a good reason. We want other people to know we're upset about some injustice. So, that unfortunately is what we're seeing now: is people engaged at this highly emotional state of just denouncing other people as subhuman and they should be destroyed, particularly on social media where there's anonymity. You reproduced some of your correspondence with an editor at Scientific American, and you didn't name who the editor was in your piece, and certainly we're not going to name them here, because we're talking about broad trends. We're not here to shame anybody. Right. They, <laughs> this editor took you to task for citing Martin Luther King and Langston Hughes. You were citing them for the principle, you know, maybe judge people by the content of their character, mm -hmm. not the color of their skin. Martin Luther King, to some extent, is held in suspicion now because he focused on the individual. MLK preached a message of hope, which is oddly off message. If the message is it's all about the ineradicable horrors of whiteness, who are we allowed to cite anymore? I mean, and and this brings us to to this latest column. You know, the reason we're having this conversation, the reason I actually revisited this piece of yours, this is very late December. Scientific American published, I'm, I don't want to say it's the craziest piece they published because that Jedi piece, like nothing will ever match that. Unless maybe they do a thing about Lego or something. But the piece <laughs> purported to be a commentary on E.O. Wilson, the uh, famous scientist who, who passed away, uh, written by a woman named Monica McLemore, associate professor in the family healthcare nursing department. Uh, this is at the University of California, San Francisco, so not so far from where you are. The other articles we've been talking about from Scientific American actually had a thesis and obeyed the forms of argumentation to some extent. This, this thing was just an absolute mess. There's a sentence in here, the so-called normal distribution of statistics mm -hmm. assumes that there are default humans who serve as the standard that mm. the rest of us can be accurately measured against. This is just blatant bullshit. This was written by someone who has no idea what the hell they're talking about. I think that piece is not really about Ed Wilson. I think but she had just... no idea who Ed Wilson is. She, she casually accused him of racism, but cited nothing. Like nothing. No, and she and she got challenged on Twitter to, to produce a single writing, a sentence from any of Ed Wilson's massive opus. And, and, and she just punted on it, just said, well, you go find it. It's everywhere. It's like, no, it's not. So this is, you know, the deeper problem here, in addition to being a calumny against a, a, a truly kind, very generous, open, liberal, tolerant uh, individual, Ed Wilson, he was not a racist. And this gets back to the blank slate thing that, you know, he was attacked in the late 70s by Steve Gould and Dick Lewington at Harvard for being a genetic determinist, even though he wasn't. All he was saying is, you know, look, we have to consider the evolutionary and biological nature of humans like we do all other animals. So this was the last chapter of his 1975 book, Sociobiology. The rest of all the other chapters, like 23 other chapters, are on all the different animals. And the only chapter that got everybody upset was that he was just making the same application to humans. Again, this is the kind of thing you'd see from 
creationists, from Christian conservative creationists. But instead, it came from liberal scientists who are atheists like Steve Gould and Dick Lewinton. They, and, and Gould and Lewinton formed the, I think it was the people, uh, science for the people or the, the people's science. I mean, it was something like out of a Monty Python routine. Uh, and, uh, you know, they were, they were going to stand up against biological determinism and they lost those battles. I mean, they, they made it public. Uh, Wilson himself complained in his autobiography that, you know, why didn't they just come up to my office? I was one, one floor above them or below or whatever. And, and, and the answer is because they wanted to play it out in public. They, they did this mostly in the New York Review of Books. So you can read all those essays and uh, they lost. I mean, Steve Pinker engaged with Gould on this whole subject of biological determinism and, and adaptationism and evolution and so on. And, and Pinker, I thought, really just mopped the floor with him. And I love Steve Gould. I thought he was brilliant. He was a, he was a friend, but I thought he lost that battle. He took too hard of a line on, on, on biological determinism because Ed, the way Ed did it was the right way to do it. And of course, now that book is old. And so there's been a lot of research since then. And so he was wrong about this or that, whatever. But that's not what this, this author was arguing. You know, she was just saying we have to deal with his, uh, you know, scientific racism. I mean, again, that was then we're talking a century ago when race science was all the rage by liberals, by the way. The, if you read the piece, there's they she uses that like that word, that, that kind of woke language like black bodies. But it's such a weird phrase. It's such a weird Gothic grace note. It's just this random thing. Instead of saying black people, black human beings, it's always black bodies like we're in some horror film or something. I see this everywhere. To me, that's a calumny against black people. It, it, it implies that black people have no mind, no soul. They're just they're just meat. Well, of course, they don't think that. What they're arguing is that that's the way whites think about blacks. No, it isn't. <laughs> Not anymore. I'm Jewish. When I go to Germany, I don't say, do you have any rooms for a Jewish cadaver? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know. It's really discouraging. I keep hoping the pendulum is going to swing back anytime. It, it, it hasn't started yet. Uh, but maybe I think if enough of us push back, and say enough. I've started to see in Canada a little bit is that the people who are pushing back most effectively, they're younger than you and me. They're less white than you and me. Uh, and I'm thinking in particular, you know, the National Post newspaper here in Canada. It's a place I started my journalistic career. I still write for them often. Uh, I love the place. It's what passes for conservative in Canada, which I guess would be, you know, slightly left of center in the United States. There have been times when they've asked me to write about a, a particular subject. And, and I look, and it's a subject that's already been covered. These are people half my age, again, much more diverse crowd. And I actually sit back and I say, you know what? I don't need to weigh in on this. And maybe this makes me like woke, but I'm loving seeing these younger, more diverse writers. And I love the fact that on Twitter, you can't get the usual Greek chorus that comes in and say, oh, of course you say that you're a middle-aged white guy. It's kind of it's kind of nice to watch that happen. Mm. My argument is if you're a conservative, even if you like hate the traditional slogans in favor of diversity, it, at the very least, what you should like about diversity is when you get diversity of opinion within all of these groups, they're starting to make their voices heard, although often they have to overcome the criticism of people within their own groups who, who call them Uncle Toms or whatnot. Um, you wrote for Scientific American for 20 years. Nothing lasts forever. You make that point in your Substack. Is it kind of a blessing to, to maybe be able to sit back and say, we're in this age where people are going to dismiss what you have to say because you're an experienced male white writer? Like, is it time to let these people talk common sense? 
because they just, in this age, they have more moral authority to do it. <laughs> well, I don't know. I'm not done yet. I still like writing, and I- I'm, young at, I'm young at heart. <laughs> Neither of us are putting out the pasture yet. But look, you and I, we're lucky. We have an abundance of outlets like books and podcasts and all this stuff. But when it comes to, I'm talking about opinion column writing. Is there a virtue of just guys like us sitting back and, you know, let the kids do it? Yeah, I see what you're saying. Okay, so it could be that the pushback will come more effectively from younger people. Yes, people in that cohort who uh, maybe progressives would expect to be on their side and these, let's say, non-conservative uh, so they can't be targeted as, oh, you're just a right-wing nut job watching Fox News. No, if they're kind of fellow travelers that have the same goals of, of wanting more social justice, and they come out and say, this is not the way to do it. This is incorrect. This is not going to get us to our yeah. goal. That They may 100%. listen to more than, say, they would listen to you and I. That's possible. But I think just to focus on that, what what's wrong with this approach this idea that there's systemic racism or it's you know it's baked into the DNA of the of the Western world through capitalism and colonialism and and so on and so forth and the problem with that is what are you going to do with that what's the problem to be solved uh, you know Martin Luther King he specifically targeted areas cities bus lines and so on where there was a, yeah. a huge problem that everybody could see. And he went to the most racist places in the South he could find because that's the problem that needed most solving and that would get the most attention in the media that would lead to the change of laws there that would then set a precedence for changing laws elsewhere where the system was not so bad. You know, but this idea that, well, the problem is everybody's racist. Okay, well, what Okay, what are we going to do about that? Well, we're going to send all employees at Starbucks through a racial sensitivity training program, which they did. And, and, and that does nothing. We know there's lots of research now on these. And in any case, the, uh, as I've said, most people are not like that. They're not racist. They're not bigots. They're trying to do the right thing. So by putting them through the programs, that just irritates them. And then the, the actual handful of real racist bigots, misogynists that are still out there, they don't care about racial sensitivity training programs. They're, they believe what they believe. You can put them through all the programs you want. They're still going to come out the other end the way that they are. So th- that's not the solution. The solution is if there is some mathematician in the behind closed doors and and they're looking at two candidates in the final pick, one's a male and the other's a female, and, and the guy makes some remark like, well, she might get pregnant, so let's hire the guy. All right. That's the guy that that's the problem. That guy right there that just said that he's the problem. Not there's this systemic misogyny and, and patriarchy and all of academic mathematics everywhere in the Western world. That That's not true. It's that guy right there. He's the problem. This is close to mind for me because after everything happened in Minneapolis, you had people marching through the streets in Toronto with signs and slogans that says Toronto is no better than Minneapolis. Well, and then I crunched the numbers and I said, actually, Toronto police are 30 times less likely to shoot people than the Minneapolis police force. But but no one wanted to hear that. What they wanted to hear is that we all drink from the same poisoned water. We all have the same original sin. We're all absolutely irredeemable white supremacists. The air we breathe, the ground under our feet, it's all soaked in the sins of colonialism. They want this totalizing narrative, and they actually don't really care about statistics. And ultimately, that this is the problem, I think, maybe at places like Scientific American. The data actually just gets in the way. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. But again, it's that race essentialism that's so, uh, to me, racist. <laughs> the, the most important thing I can know about a person is how much melanin they have in their skin. 
I mean, that should be the least interesting thing about somebody. I mean, what, who cares? What difference does well, it make? Careful. That leads to Martin Luther Kingism. <laughs> well, I've just I've been tweeting about this example in, in last Friday's New Year's Eve. Uh, Wall Street Journal, full page ad. You know, those cost tens of thousands of dollars. Uh, here it is. Uh, watch now at dearwhiteparents.guide. That's the URL. And the, the ad says, Dear White Parents. We can raise an anti-racist generation. It's a three and a half minute film, uh, and so I watched it. And you know, it's 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 parents having conversations with little kids. Well, I have a five year old, you know, and, and it's like, am I supposed to set him down and go, okay, look, here's the deal. You see that person over there? Did you notice he's black? Because this is really really important that you notice that he's black. Now, it used to be that people uh, like us who have white skin used to think those people with black skin are inferior, but we know better now. So I want you to learn this lesson. Well, now he's got banging around in his little five-year-old head that, uh, okay, so I'm supposed to be looking around the world and, and assessing skin color. This is important. Why is this important? I don't want him to think about people in terms of skin color. This is a terrible idea. And, and again, I have to qualify this, that you know, teaching our history, our dark history in history classes, political science classes, cultural studies classes, age appropriate, middle school, high school, and so on, that's all good. We should do that. Uh, but, but this kind of idea that, okay, we have a massive, serious, huge racial problem in America. We want everybody to sit down at, uh, you know, at New, uh, New Year's Day uh, dinner with the fa and, and talk about race. It's like, really? That's the most important thing we should be thinking about people is their skin color? I, I find this just appalling. I find the exact opposite of what Martin Luther King taught us. Michael Shermer is the publisher of Skeptic Magazine, a presidential fellow at Chapman University, host of The Michael Shermer Show, and he has a Skeptic Substack column, which you can find at michaelshermer.substack.com. Michael, thanks so much for being on the Quillette Podcast. No, thanks for having me. Always enjoy your shows and, and love the site. Quillette, very courageous. Keep going. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to Quillette.com where you will find more content.